as a startup, you are taking a lot of risk. As an entrepreneur, you're taking a lot of risk. You expect to fail yourself many, many, many ways. You don't expect your bank to fail. I think founders were like cats and we're never quite sure which life we're on. And you know, I thought maybe we were on a three or four and it, it felt like suddenly we were on eight or nine very quickly. It's pretty exciting to imagine that. You could take a real human teacher, you could train models based on their voice, based on their knowledge, based on state curriculums, and then you could render versions of that teacher for students. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Sourcing tech talent and delivering your software roadmap shouldn't be difficult. That's why DZ connects high-growth companies with some of the best pre-vetted developers from across the world. Whether supporting your in-house team, building your dream dev squad, or delivering a project end-to-end, DZ's unique model is trusted by businesses globally to help them rapidly execute software development. DZ is offering all UKTN listeners a 10% discount on their first engagement. Go to dz.com slash UKTN to access quality development teams today. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly conversation with founders of some of the UK's high growth tech companies. Each episode, we will talk through the founders' personal journey, their vision for their business and their views of the wider tech industry. I'm Jane Wakefield and I'm joined today by Toby Mather, the co-founder and CEO of educational technology startup Lingumi. Welcome, Toby. Thanks, Jane. Great to be here. Now, Toby, we are going to talk about Lingumi and the general ed tech industry in a minute. But first of all, we need to talk about a story that has been consuming the UK tech startup scene this week and last week, the collapse and subsequent rescue of Silicon Valley Bank. And you, along with 3,000 other startups, were a customer. So first of all, just talk me through when you first realised there could be a problem. So I was away last week traveling and I heard some some rumblings on on Thursday evening uh, in my WhatsApp communities for founders. The next day I was traveling literally all day but was following Twitter and WhatsApp and the news as close as I could and started to realize that there was going to be a possible run on the bank. And that's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma situation. So what I did immediately was from an airport, you know, boarding gate, I tried to get just enough money out of our bank account to ensure that we could cover payroll in two weeks. And I did that across a series of small transactions and hoped that some of those were clear before getting on the plane. I then nervously sat through a plane ride and upon landing, joined a call with the CEO of the bank in the UK who said that deposits were safe in the UK, the balance sheet was healthy and all transfers made that day would be honoured. A few hours later, it quickly became clear that that wasn't the case. I'm not suggesting that the, the UK CEO didn't know that or did know that rather, I just think you know, possibly there were things going on at the government level. And with the news of the collapse on Friday night and the government stepping in, I was then obviously extremely anxious. And, um, you know, through Saturday and Sunday, remained very tense while we waited to see what would happen. I can imagine that was a pretty horrific plane journey, not being able to even access uh, information. Because I think of runs on banks and I think of It's a Wonderful Life, first of all, that old film where it features, but also those terrible scenes of people queuing outside Northern Rock back in 2008, scenes perhaps we never thought we'd see again. And while this has been different, I guess for those startups involved in this, the anxiety has been exactly the same. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, possibly 
it's made worse by the fact that these things have moved to to WhatsApp and Twitter and you know the the rumor mill probably inflated the problem. And as a startup, you are taking a lot of risk. As an entrepreneur, you're taking a lot of risk. You expect to fail yourself many, many, many ways. You don't expect your bank to fail. And I think founders were like cats, and we're never quite sure which life we're on. And you know, I thought maybe we were on a three or four, and it, it felt like suddenly we were on eight or nine very quickly uh, over the weekend, and that was a very scary situation. And interestingly, that you, along with pretty much everyone else that's talked about this, has talked firstly about payroll. That's, I guess, the most immediate thing, isn't it? Because it's the people that are working for you. Was there anything else that was going through your mind over the weekend? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my first concern was for my employees. Um, if I think if I if we worked in healthcare technology and we provided critical infrastructure for the NHS, I might be saying the patients first. I'm sure there are many founders in that position. But for me, you know, the, the most affected people would be my employees and you know their mortgages and their kids and their families and and and, and so on. Um, you know, we're a B two C company, so our customers would have been affected too, but probably a little bit further down the line. My secondary set of concerns was probably the ripple effect. Not being able to pay our suppliers meant that our services, our, our databases, our, our, our infrastructure started to get cut off. And indeed, we did have bills starting to bounce from Sunday and Monday. But that was a secondary concern. And I know that you've spoken to UKTN about this and you had 85% of your funds with this bank. What would have it meant for your business if there hadn't been the resolution that we thankfully have now seen? We're in the lucky minority in the sense that we had some money outside the UK in, in some of our bank accounts and our subsidiaries. But we also have a pretty robust revenue line and pretty solid cash flows. And as a result, you know, we might have been able to squeak through if we got our cash flow cycle moving as quickly as possible, got some money out of our foreign bank accounts into the UK and, you know, pulled in revenue as quickly as we could to turn it into working capital. We might have squeezed through, but it would have been very, very tight indeed. The problem is we knew we had big invoices coming up for, you know, big bits of infrastructure that we were taking on, et cetera, in our tech stack. And I think we, we probably wouldn't have been able to pay those. So our service would have degraded. As a startup, you're investing ahead. You know, you're doing research and development ahead of time and you get revenue later for that work. And that is unusual in, in the bigger scheme of businesses, but that's how startups run. So, you know, we would have been severely affected. Obviously, this is a fast moving story. So things could have changed by the time we go to air. But now, as we're speaking, it's the day after HSBC has bought SVB UK. Does that mean that it's back to normal for you now? It's back to normal. I was absolutely amazed by the speed with which the Treasury and the Bank of England moved. I mean, they moved faster than the average startup, faster than the best startups. And to have a crisis unfold on Friday night and get a, a solution by Monday morning is just exceptional. I, I, you know, whoever was, you know, working in Jeremy Hunt's team in particular, I think deserves almost praise. Things are now back to normal. As of Monday, about 3 p.m., we got access to our account. And uh, as of um, this morning, certainly transfers have been clearing as usual. And we've had you know, plentiful communications from Silicon Valley Bank and from HSBC. I think it's the first time that government has ever been described as moving faster than a startup. So I, I expect <laughs> they'll be very pleased with that. Why do you think it did move so quickly? Was it because it's such an important area to keep the UK startup scene moving fast? Or was there some other reason why it acted so quickly? I think there were, there were two things. One I know about and one I can speculate about. The first was that there was a Dunkirk style effort across the British tech ecosystem. VC groups, I'll call out Local Globe, one of our investors, but but you know many others uh, working very hard to, to lobby about the how critical the tech ecosystem is to UK growth. Rishi Sunak had described it as a as a as a the failure as being a non not systemic risk, and and today to the banking system that might have been true, but tomorrow to UK growth and STEM that it was a systemic risk. I think that was made manifestly clear by founders, 
by VCs and, and by the wider ecosystem. You know, we all spent the entire weekend working on that. The second one, which I can only speculate on, is that, you know, we've heard a lot in uh, leadership uh, contests and so on that, that Jeremy Hunt is a former entrepreneur, in fact, a former edtech entrepreneur. I think we saw it. I think we saw the DNA of that in, in the treasury team and in, in um, you know, Rishi Sunak was famously at Stanford. So there does seem to be some understanding of the critical role that, that tech plays in the future of UK growth. And the deposits relative to a normal bank are very small for SVB UK because these are small companies. But the technology business is trying to build, you know, AI to cure cancer and, and things like that. And and so, you know, the future of UK tech is going to be to find the next arm, the next Deliveroo, et cetera, by these companies that would have lost access to all their deposits. You know, we're a tiny player in that, but we're one of those. And would you like to see that same kind of fast thinking applied to the tech scene more generally? I'm thinking, you know, there's been some criticism for instance, of the ending of Tech Nation recently. Is it only in a crisis that the government can act like this? And should it be acting like that in normal times to ensure that the UK has a thriving and vibrant startup scene? Well, I think, you know, in the startup world, if you're in an unregulated space like us, we say, you know, move move fast and break things is, is basically a good way of operating because the impact is very small. If you're the government, I think it's not your job to move fast and break things. It's your job to move slowly and not break too much stuff. I don't think it's possible to operate as I'm sure Dominic Cummings would have liked in a move fast and break things way when you're responsible for the lives of tens of millions of people and their healthcare and their bins and and, and all these other things. So I think broadly speaking, no, um, I don't think it's realistic to expect that. But this is why, you know, in a crisis to have the the talent and the understanding of the context to be able to move quickly when needed to, to, to prevent crisis, that should be a core capability of government. So hopefully deployed rarely, but deployed very effectively as we saw this weekend. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners. Now, let's talk a little bit about Lingumi. What is it that your app does? Because the market is flooded, isn't it, with edtech companies? It's really something that people have jumped behind. Some are very useful, some perhaps less so. So let's talk through, first of all, what it is that you're aiming to achieve. Sure. So our, our mission is to bring the world's best teaching experience to children through technology. And we do that by building a mobile app where families around the world can get access to lessons that feel alive, that feel as interactive as a a live class with a tutor, but cost about one-tenth of the price of live tutoring. The way we do that is by using AI, voice recognition, video technology, etc., to allow a few very extraordinary teachers to build courses that they can deliver at massive scale so a family can take them at home in their own time and at much lower cost than, than a live tutor. We're not trying to replace teachers with that. Rather, we're trying to allow families who can't afford tutors or the child's not old enough for tutors access to really exceptional curriculums to start learning to read and speak languages from two, three or four years old. Now, I understand that this is booming in China. Yeah, we've we've been very successful in China over the last few years, having launched there in, in uh, 2019. In China, there's great respect for education from the earliest years. The, the Chinese word for teacher, Lao Shu, literally translates to old master. Uh, which I think shows some of the reverence towards education, which I hope uh, UK teachers would agree is something that we could do a bit better here, both in pay and in um, in culture. 
So certainly it's a country where we found great uh, product market fit. And what are your kind of plans for 2023? Do you want to expand to other countries or are there new services you want to bring onto the app? What's the short term plans? So there are, there are two things we're trying to achieve. One is we want to be the destination where families can go to get access to a fantastic first teacher for their child, not just to learn English, but for example, learning to read. So we built a phonics course, which we launched at the end of last year, which families in the UK can use to get their child started on phonics. And we're using that to try and solve the problem that 33% of families in the UK, their child goes to school, to primary school, without a sufficient level of reading ability. What that represents in our strategy is a, is a horizontal expansion to more subjects, different age ranges, different abilities on our same technology platform. Speaking of that technology platform, the second thing is, you know, we've spent the last several years trying to build a set of technologies that let you create a virtual experience of a real human being. And, you know, the excitement around generative AI recently, around voice synthesis, etc., are making us make that more and more possible faster. So we'd like our teachers, the experiences they create on our platform to feel even more human even more responsive and contingent to the child and even more adaptive to the child's specific ability level and interests and so on. So that's the other thread of work that we're exploring. I've heard it said by, I think it was an AI expert, that in the future there will be no need for us to learn languages because we are just able to use tools like Google Translate and presumably other ones that will come in its wake that are far better. So we just don't need to learn them ourselves. How how would you kind of respond to that? I think it's a perfectly legitimate philosophical perspective without trying to, you know, be reductive about it. I think it's possible to argue that um, that problem in film was solved with dubbing, and yet there's a reason most of us still choose to watch with subtitles. Language is about more than just the base communication of the content. It's also about culture and tone. Even though I have teammates who speak fluent Chinese and can use Google Translate or Baidu Translate when I'm in China quite effectively, I still choose to spend years learning the language because the experience I get from being able to communicate in the language with all the cultural context is much, much deeper. And and it, to be honest, puts me ahead competitively of of other people. Uh, The the people who win in the future economy are still going to be the ones who can communicate most effectively. And most effective is still going to be human communication and not relying on an AI to do the job for you. You must be onto something here because you were profitable last quarter. So what would you say has been the sort of key thing that has got you to that position? There's been a big trend in in the last six months or so to, to try to reduce operating costs of startups. The mood music has certainly changed as interest rates rose, venture capital started to to dry up. Lingumi has you know, been working on that for 18 months. We've had a very disciplined finance function internally, and we've been really focused on uh, trying to make the business profitable. And um, as you say, we were there last quarter. It's a little bit seasonal for us, but um, you know, this full financial year, we're, we're aiming towards that as well. At its core, what we're doing is something highly scalable. We have an 85% gross margin because we use technology to deliver an experience that's valuable to a customer and hopefully solves a real pain point in their lives, but without needing to incur a lot of cost as, as say, a live tutoring platform would do. And so, you know, the, the base economics of, of the model uh, work well. We've just got disciplined about, about scaling our customer base without scaling our cost base too much. Mm-hmm. I've been writing about sort of education and tech for a long time now. And actually, before I became a journalist, I was a teacher. So I've had, got a special interest in this area. But it feels to me that there's never really been a great big breakthrough in the way that we teach. We are still falling back to the old methods. And you know, we had the pandemic and we saw everybody suddenly relying on remote education. And yet that's now completely gone away, almost as if it didn't exist. What is it, do you think, that sort of stops us kind of radically transforming education and really, really drawing on the power of technology to fuel the next generation of learners? That's a really 
fantastic question. I, I can't pretend to be wise enough to have a great answer to it, but I'll try my best. I think that there have been research breakthroughs, certainly. In the academic world, we've seen really strong peer-reviewed proof that models like high-dosage tutoring and direct instruction, which is one of the oldest forms of education, you know, since sort of Aristotelian times, are the most effective way of teaching uh, at the one-to-one level in the case of high-dosage tutoring and with uh, classrooms, a direct instruction, actually, despite its many critics, has been proven to be very effective as a way of low-cost delivery of of, uh, key information. I think as a teacher, former teacher myself, and having been building in this space for a long time, the the bit of that that I've picked to try and chip away at is how can we bring that idea of high-doses tutoring, i.e. very high-frequency exposure to a human teacher teaching in a pedagogically effective model um, to more children because the big blocker there is scaling up the number of teachers and bringing down the cost of access to them. And I think the blocker, the thing that's been blocking a breakthrough there is that technology never made that experience feel human. And as a result, it was never quite good enough to move to a a fundamentally tech-driven model and tech-driven paradigm. And I've been very excited following what's happening in the AI world because I think we're now getting very close. In the Spike Jonesy film, Her, we see this very human contingent relationship with a voice assistant. That felt impossible when that film came out several years ago. I think it's just beginning to feel possible now. And for anyone who's seen the demos from Apple of the voice synthesized audiobooks, who's seen, you know, emerging models like Synthesia and, uh, of course, you know, the very early efforts in, in generative video coming out of, you know, Meta and, and Google and so on. It's pretty exciting to imagine that you could take a real human teacher, you could train models based on their voice, based on their knowledge, based on state curriculums, and then you could render versions of that teacher for students. And and that's basically at Lingumi what we're trying to do to to build the tools to make that possible. Right now, though, chat GPT and generative AI is, is causing a headache for educationalists, isn't it? Because it's sort of almost impossible to tell whether a piece of work was written by a human or by an AI giving those people who've cheated on their homework for years a whole nother tool in their armory. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's it's the old meeting the new in, a, in an uncomfortable uh, crash right now. I would look at the question the other way around and say, is written homework the right way of assessing a child's abilities? And actually is giving children and young learners, you know, they don't have to be young, giving any learner a powerful assistant with access to the sum of the world's recorded knowledge a, a good way of helping them achieve their goals in life? Maybe it is. For example, you know, I, I expect that lots of assessment will move from uh, summative uh, to formative. I expect that lots of homework will move from writing something at home to presenting something in the classroom where you've used these various tools to prepare you, but ultimately you've got to get up in front of your peers and present. And I'm saying that because I think, you know, in the workplace, in the technology world where more and more people are working now, those are the skills I have to use every day. Synthesizing information, researching information, using tools, getting up in front of people, presenting that confidently, having ingested that knowledge myself. I think that AI tools, ChatGPT to name one, can be a very useful way of helping a young learner serve themselves, ingest information, think about it, test its truthfulness, and then go and present that in, in the real world, which is a, a very uh, forward compatible skill. So in some ways, it's sort of a crisis that's going to force the change rather than a sort of uh, thought out pedagogical philosophy, do you think? Quite possibly, yes. I think a little like your earlier question about the government, crises are often required to force systemic change. I think the larger the system, the larger the crisis needs to be. We'll see if this is a large enough crisis. I, I suspect it probably isn't. I actually think that chat GPT and classroom stuff might be unfortunately a bit too much of a storm in a teacup to change the model of, of written examinations, which, which I'm not an enormous fan of. You know, time will tell. 
I'm going to go back just quickly to the sort of startup scene before we finish. It occurs to me that actually a lot of the startup scene has been quite cushioned from the economic problems that we've seen. I've been to quite a lot of startup conferences in the last year, and you wouldn't necessarily know that we were going through terrible economic times. Whilst a crisis, as we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank, does perhaps reflect that, generally there is this cushioning. Are you confident that this is a one-off, or do you think that the downturn that we're seeing in the wider economy is going to have a filtered-down effect on the UK and wider startup scene? I think I'll, I'll just question the premise of the question first, which is we're seeing some some green shoots in, in UK economic growth. The much talked about recession is, is yet to be sort of validated economically. I maintain suspicious that, that the economic crisis is going to deepen. We have to see what happens in, in the wider economy. But I agree with you that certainly there's been some cushioning. I think that came about because of the unexpected boom in venture capital during COVID, uh, from which, you know, actually Lingumi didn't directly take advantage. We just kept growing our business under our own steam. But I think it has forced a level of discipline across the startup ecosystem, which is very, very healthy. You know, I've been doing this seven and a half years. I'm not claiming to know any more than anyone else. But I have had to go through a few of the cat's lives already. Uh, and that forced us to be disciplined at various points with, with our finances. But there's a generation of founders who came into the economy during COVID when raising capital was easier and are now having to learn the, the kind of next bit of the journey, which is how do you uh, rationalize your, your business and try to reduce your operating costs and try to get to product market fit and drive revenue into the business sooner. I think that's only good for anyone working in a, in a technology business. A technology business is not a super special unicorn. It, it, ultimately, it's, it needs to make more money than it spends. That's what every business has to do. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, you're used to risk, although you weren't necessarily expecting a, a, a collapse of a bank. But also startups are very good about learning from their mistakes. So if you were going to summarise the learnings that you take away from this horrible past week, what would they be? I think the learning for an early stage startup is this was a freak event from their perspective. I don't think an early stage startup could be expected to have a treasury system in place and a finance team running multiple bank accounts. And they should continue. And I would encourage startups to bank with Silicon Valley Bank under its new ownership because they are a great partner in the startup ecosystem. For, for a more scaled up company who's, you know, storing many millions with a finance team, I do think lessons have been learned about having sweeps regularly, you know, each week to move non-operating liquidity out of, you know, single bank dependency and so on. And I think there'll probably be a generation of, of financial products that take advantage of this learning or are born as a result of this. And that probably improve the financial durability of the entire ecosystem. So, you know, I think there's a very positive effect over the next few years in terms of the diversification of, of cash management in the startup ecosystem. Toby, thank you so much for joining me at such short notice. I hope that you can have a more restful weekend this weekend. But that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. Thank you again, Toby, for joining me and for those who are listening. To keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments, head over to www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter. And do get in touch with me via Twitter or LinkedIn at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, goodbye from me. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, 
engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners.